1: That's stamps.com. Code program. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.
2: Wednesday morning, the 20th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The United Kingdom is to leave the European Union in nine days. The British Prime Minister will, however, request an extension to Article 50 in a letter to the President of the European Council, Donald Tusk, today. Or, as the British papers reported today, depending on which paper you read, Theresa May will plead for a delay as the EU stands firm, or Mrs May begs the EU to delay as number 10 concedes the Brexit deal is in crisis. But what would be the purpose? of a delay? That's one of the questions the EU chief negotiator is asking. Michel Barnier says a delay should not leave us in the same position we are in today. It must be justified. It needs uh, to be linked to something new, a new event or a new political process. Mairead McGuinness, Fine Gael MEP for the Midlands North West and Vice President of the European Parliament joins us now. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us uh, today. What is Michel Barnier suggesting? A A general election in the United Kingdom?
3: Well, good morning, Michael. I think everyone's making all sorts of suggestions because we don't have any clarity from the United Kingdom. And I suppose it's, all things are possible. Um, and yet the one thing that we need to be possible, the ratification of the withdrawal agreement, as you know, was thrown a banner in the works this week because of the Speaker's decision. So it's possible that an extension will be requested. But I think, um, you know, there are lots of discussions about the purpose of it. And I think one of the fears that Europe has is that if we get to um, the end of this short extension and still have not ratified the withdrawal agreement, then we simply have this rollover effect, which means rolling over uncertainty, um, concerns for citizens, for business, and the things we're living with now could just drift on. So I think that it is quite serious that we're at this stage of the uh, negotiations or the process of Brexit, and as you say, very few days left to the 29th of March, which is enshrined in UK legislation. And unless that legislation is changed, and I think people don't realise that, the legislation in the UK has to change in order to avoid a crash-out Brexit on the 29th of March.
2: Is that possible, given the divide that there is in uh, the British Cabinet? This used to be the Cabinet that would deliver Brexit. Uh, Now, that's not what I'm hearing. Uh, That's uh, a quote that makes for the front page of a a couple of uh, the newspapers uh, today from uh, Minister Andrea Leedsham, uh, who, along with Liam Fox and uh, Chris Grayling, have uh, told Mrs May that they could resign over uh, a long Brexit delay. And that is
3: perhaps one of the reasons why she's opting for a short um, extension. But I think she's going to have to give some, you know, clear signals to the leaders of the European Union that we can get the withdrawal agreement over the line. And there were some indications perhaps from the DUP and other hardliners that were beginning to soften towards the withdrawal agreement because they, they are concerned that there might indeed be a longer extension. I'm not surprised that Andrea Legsam and others are, you know, being very strong about this. We are back to... Where we were when this referendum was called in 2016. It was called for the purpose of healing the rifts in the Conservative Party. It hasn't done that. In fact, it has deepened the divides. And I, you know, I don't mind parties having problems, but I really, really mind for those problems. You know, spill over into Ireland, into the rest of Europe and without sufficient thought from the United Kingdom about the disruption that is already been caused because of the Brexit process and is likely now to be extended further into the summer months.
2: The front page of the Daily Mail uh, has uh, possibly the most interesting of headlines or opinions uh, on its front page. It says exactly 1,000 days ago, Britain voted to leave the EU. Today, incompetent MPs and hard Brexit zealots have made us a laughing stock And now Brussels is telling us to think again. The result, 1,000 wasted days. Does that summarise uh, the situation from Britain's perspective, do you think?
3: Well, I think we've all been involved in that 1,000 days. I mean, this Brexit process has taken over um, our our daily work, which also has to continue and that there are many difficult things to deal with. So I I agree with that notion that if this was so simple when the referendum was called, why are we in this mess today? And the truth is, and it's a very hard truth to say to the United Kingdom and indeed to the former Prime Minister, David Cameron, He did not plan for um, a decision of the citizens of the United Kingdom to leave the European Union. I don't think he had a plan at all. It was all about the Conservative Party, with the result that there is turmoil in British society, in the House of Commons, within parties. I mean, this is... And yesterday, the Prime Minister's spokesperson said, this is a crisis. Well, I think it's beyond a crisis. Um, I just stepped out of a meeting of our group trying to discuss the various permutations and combinations of what might happen... And I suppose people are saying, well, what if we get to this, the end of this short extension? Will there then be requests for a further extension? And what then about uh, the European Parliament elections, which happen at the end of May? And I believe that there are citizens in the United Kingdom who will demand that they are allowed vote in the elections even though the UK is leaving and even though the Prime Minister doesn't want to hold elections. Mm -hmm. So there's an awful lot of legal turmoil, political turmoil, societal turmoil, because of Brexit. And I suppose it speaks to the point that it it wasn't a good idea because it wasn't thought through. And I think that is the tragedy, that it is only after the event that um, citizens in the United Kingdom are getting some information about how Europe works, why it's important to their lives, and why leaving it is a terrible wrench but if they are going, we need it
2: to happen with certainty, clarity and with an orderly uh, process. Uh, and none uh, of the above uh, seem possible this morning with uh, just nine days to go. And talk about down to the wire. It mm-hmm. would uh, appear uh, to some extent, uh, at least, that this may not even be resolved uh, this week, uh, that there might be an additional meeting of leaders in Europe next week uh, to uh, take a look at this request for an extension.
3: Yeah, I mean, sadly, I think you're right, Michael, because um, they will need time to reflect and maybe they will want answers to questions that the Prime Minister might not be able to give. Maybe it is that they will want to see a vote next week on the withdrawal agreement in the House of Commons. However that can be done, given the Speaker's view of, you know, a third meaningful vote, it would have to be significantly different. So there's an awful lot of complexities which nobody predicted in this mix, which has become quite toxic. But another meeting next week of the Leader's is possible. I think they would be willing to come together. I suppose I'm still concerned that, um, you know, a statutory instrument has to go through both houses of Parliament in the United Kingdom in order to change Brexit day. And I'm not sure we have enough time, enough days left. I suppose if there's a, a will, there is a way. But so far there hasn't been a will and therefore there hasn't been a way.
2: Yeah, and uh, the idea of uh, the European uh, elections really does confuse uh, things. Uh, What are the possibilities for that? Uh, If uh, people in Britain, let's say, voted in the European elections in a short delay scenario uh, up to June, but they decided to leave then, that would be one possible confusing scenario that they'd have Mm -hmm. voted for MPs but then leave the European Union. But the even more confusing scenario, I, I think, is if they didn't Vote, but then decided to stay.
3: Well, exactly, and I think that second scenario—I um, think citizens are not well awash that because there are citizens in the United Kingdom who want to take part in European elections, and if the Europe, if rather the United Kingdom remains a full member beyond the um, election day, I, they have a very valid case. So there's lots of problems now because we're not clear whether this short extension will sort out the impasse over the withdrawal agreement. And the reason I expect and why the Prime Minister is picking a short extension is so that she avoids having to have elections to the European Parliament. But I would anticipate legal challenges around that from citizens who want to be part of the European process. Definitely, if it runs to a long extension... Uh, there would have to be elections in uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, the after-event scenario that you've just painted, really, I haven't even gone there because it is such a complex mm. scenario that it is hard to see how we could find a way out. And don't forget that in Ireland and in other member states, we have redistributed some of the seats that the UK would be vacating. Ireland was to get two additional seats. We've redrawn our boundaries. What might be the impact on that? if there is a longer stay for the United Kingdom in the European Union. I mean, my my heart would like to see the United Kingdom remaining, but I suppose I also want to be pragmatic and try and get to a place where we know what the future holds in terms of the withdrawal agreement and we can start talking about that future partnership.
2: All right, uh, and uh, there was some talk uh, that... uh, there could be a scenario that we would vote for two M- MEPs who would not take a, up seats until such time that this was uh, decided uh, and they may never take up those seats or, or they may be just sitting on the substitutes' bench as such.
3: Well, you see, I think that would be something that if you were one of those two, you might not like that, in that in good faith you stood at a convention or you went as an independent and you got elected and you're left in this um, a strange political quagmire. Uh, so, you know, whatever way we turn the twist on this, There isn't a clear path or an easy way forward. The first thing that has to be done is that the United Kingdom has to decide that it will support the withdrawal agreement negotiated with the United Kingdom. And then we can move and breathe with a sigh of relief. If that is not done within a short space of time, we're facing either a hard no-deal Brexit Friday week, it's that close, all uh, we're facing a longer extension of Article 50 to give the United Kingdom body politics time to find out what it wants. Um, and then it, there's all sorts of scenarios possible in that longer time period. And there would be MEPs from the United Kingdom yeah. coming back to the European Parliament.
2: Uh, And uh, I think most people would be expecting a a delay if not an indefinite delay uh, or some agreement Uh, but uh, is there the prospect that we'll be sitting here scratching our heads on on Friday week and the UK has just crashed out and we're asking ourselves how did that happen?
3: Well I think we know the answer as to how it happened. It happened because the United Kingdom didn't know what it wanted. It doesn't know what it doesn't want um, and I think we would be very clear about that with the European Union in my view, negotiated extremely fairly, and in the end Vendor were backwards to accept the United Kingdom's propositions uh, on the various aspects of the withdrawal agreement. I hope you're wrong, Michael, um, that he won't be, you know, talking Friday week and mm. wondering how we, you know, got to a crash out Brexit. Um, I hope we're you know, having a conversation that says we have time now to sort this out.
2: Are you more it's, confident, you know, though, than hopeful, I suppose, is the question? Oh,
3: mm. You know, I have a uh, and I've had an earlier start this morning, I suppose. I've been talking so much about this that sometimes what I need is a bit of space to distill all of the information. Mm. But as one of my colleagues just said in the meeting I have left, he said, you know, this isn't about Europe talking to London anymore. London has to talk to London. In other words, it's a conversation. And the way forward, has to come from the United Kingdom. And, you know, to some extent, the frustration is gathering at a European Union level to say, you know, we've done our best, we've done our best, we've negotiated, please get on with this so that we can all get on with the other difficult challenges facing us politically, economically, or socially.
2: Mm. Uh, and how concerned are you about uh, this uh, division in uh, Cabinet? Uh, has... Mrs May, the mandate to go to Europe and negotiate on behalf of the British government?
3: Well, I think she has to as Prime Minister. I mean, are we aware of those divisions in cabinet? It's not new. I mean, it's an extraordinary scenario um, how they can even hold together. Um, But I'm more concerned actually about the divisions in the House of Commons because the Prime Minister, in her attempts to... Debt support only reached out to the hardliners and the BUP. She didn't reach out to the Labour Party. We have this, as I said before, uh, unusual cocktail of sexy mm. peers and Remainers who were opposed to the withdrawal agreement, but for different reasons. Um, I don't know will those numbers switch in any way to get it over the line, because those who want to remain will vote against it. And we don't know if sufficient of the will will do a U-turn um, on vote for it. And of course, if they do that U turn, they're probably going to have to have a rest up with a good reason that they can step forward mm. and say, well, we did it because X, Y, and Z. So the politics of this are
1: pretty,
2: yeah. Awful. Yeah, and the pretty po- awful. The politics, politics of it are such that she could make a deal that she doesn't have the authority to make and return back to Downing Street to have the whole thing blow up in her her face uh, and then go into a general election without agreeing uh, on an extension for that purpose?
3: Well, I can't dismiss what you're saying. I mean, she, as Prime Minister and leader of her country, um, negotiated a withdrawal agreement and then found she couldn't get support for it. So, you know, it is entirely possible, but I hope it won't happen, that if she comes and looks for a short extension, That if she gets that, and I think that's still under discussion, then that when she goes back, that that's not accepted. Now we don't have a lot of time for this debate Mm. to happen. If she gets the extension, maybe at the end of this week, but perhaps some are saying not until next week, um, then we are, you know, very fine tuning the, the few hours that are left to tidy up all of the legal aspects. And, you know, the law matters in these things, unfortunately. We might say and wish things mm. to happen um, and be very, you know, adamant about that, but if we don't actually implement it in legislation, then the law stands and the law speaks, uh, not how I feel or what I think. It is mm. the law, ultimately, that will determine everything.
2: Alright, uh, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, I think it's going I to hope be I
3: further, but it, it is one of
2: those rather traumatic days. It's yeah. not possible to confuse me further <laughs> at this stage. So that's the relief. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Enjoy. As always, uh, Marie McGuinness, Fine MEP and Vice President of the European Parliament.
3: Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM.
2: on LMFM. Now, speaking of uh, the European elections and whatever they mean in the context of Brexit, we'll be voting uh, for a number of MEPs and uh, it may be two more than we have uh, depending on how those negotiations end up. But with those elections will come the posters. Indeed, there'll be a lot of election posters because the local elections will also be taking place in May and I'm sure all of uh, the local... Local election candidates will want to have their posters on polls across the region, but they're being asked not to by Louth Tidy Towns Together. And we're joined by the chair of the Tidy Towns Together group in Louth, Larry Magner. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Why is it that you're asking candidates not to put up posters?
4: Good morning, Michael. Well, uh, I need to clarify initially that we're not asking for a complete um, uh, ban on posters uh, by any means in the county. What we're actually asking for is that the candidates in the local elections and in the European elections don't uh, erect posters within the core areas of 13 named towns and villages in the county. Now, there are two reasons why we ask for this. It's a voluntary uh, commitment that we're looking for because, of course, posters during election time are absolutely legal so um, we're asking for a voluntary commitment by the candidates for two reasons, as I say. One is the whole aesthetics um, of, of of the um, postering campaign because Tidy Towns volunteers all over the county spend 365 days a year literally trying to ensure that their towns and villages are presented to the, to the, to the, at the highest standards in terms of presentation. And um, during a, 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 an election or indeed a referendum, mm. you can find that... The uh, proliferation of posters detracts significantly from the appearance of a town and village. And uh, I, I take totally it, it
2: I take it when you say there's 13 named areas, it's 13 tidy towns committees that have come together. Is it? It is.
4: It, it is, Michael. The um, Tidy Towns Together represent about 20 uh, Tidy Towns groups in the county, and 13 of those have um, selected to be part of this initiative. Um, uh, I can name them if you like, or do you have a list of them yourself? Sure, um,
2: sure, sure, sure. Name them very quickly if you would. Please. Okay, it's uh,
4: Anagassan, mm-hmm, yeah. RD, mm-hmm. Black Rock, Carlingford, uh, Castle Bellingham, Kilcern, Drumiskin, Dunleer Knockbridge, Loud Village, Monaster Boyce, and Tenure, uh, Omid, Stabannon, and Talonstown.
2: All right, uh, which are the important areas for the candidates who are running to be selected in those areas?
4: Indeed, indeed. And we fully accept that and we, we accept that there are lots of arguments in favour of postering, But the two arguments that we're putting forward, we would hope would supersede those and that candidates would agree that the, the, the downsides actually overcome the positives with regard to, to postering. Because the second uh, and probably the more important reason that we're asking for this voluntary commitment is because of the... The, the whole issue about um, the environmentally sustainable um, waste management, mm. particularly in relation to single use plastics and all these election posters are made from a material called board and it's effectively single-use plastic. We know that some candidates will reuse them, but by and large, they have to be either discarded or recycled or whatever afterwards and there is, as we know, an international um, uh, emphasis now on the elimination of single-use plastics. But how can a a
2: first-time candidate build a a profile up? Uh, If uh, they're not known, how can they be selected and how can they become known without uh, the ability to poster and uh, use use all of the other methods uh, available to them because they say that postering is in particular uh, of importance to first-time candidates and non-party candidates.
4: And we fully accept that, and the last thing we want to do is to interfere with with the the um, uh, democratic process in any way, Michael. And um, we we just asked the candidates to to balance the the positives with the negatives and to make up their their own mind on it. The point that we make is that nowadays, in particular, with the availability of social media, with the availability of local radio and other other means, then candidates can get their messages across probably much more cost effectively because posters are expensive. Uh, they have to be put up, they have to be mm. taken down, they have to be paid for, they have to be discarded. Uh, and um, we're saying that there are other ways, like leaflets through the letterboxes, calling at the doors is yeah. what, what we're hearing from candidates as being the, the most effective way of getting their message across.
2: Alright. Uh, I hope you don't say that again too loudly because we already are getting complaints from candidates who uh, would like airtime that it isn't possible to make available how seriously are you taking this if people ignore the request not to poster in the 13 areas that you've asked them not to are there any consequences
4: there are there are there are consequences for tidy towns groups who end up with their their villages and and towns being and I'm, I use the word mm. plastered with posters because there's really no control once once a candidate puts up posters then every other candidate will feel obliged to put them up as well although some candidates have already indicated to us that they are not going to do any postering at all which is even
2: better. Okay, I um, see in Trim, for example, uh, that a, a voluntary uh, code is also uh, being proposed, and that the chairperson of the Tidy Towns Committee there, Brian Heffernan, is warning, this is according to the Meath Chronicle today, that the Tidy Towns in trim will campaign against any candidate who are ex-posters in the town.
4: Well, certainly Loud Tidy Towns Together isn't going to be involved in any negative campaigning. Uh, now, if a, if a candidate or candidates put up posters in, 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 within the areas that we're asking to be avoided in these 13 towns and villages, then the local Tidy Towns Committee will make contact with them and maybe, maybe try to um, argue the points with them and ask them to take them down. But at the end of the day, as I said at the beginning, posters are perfectly legal within the specified time frame around elections. And uh, Tidy Towns groups don't have any authority... We're, and that's why we're seeking a voluntary commitment. And already six um, candidates in loud have indicated uh, that they will comply with it. Others we know are, if you like, waiting to see what happens. And uh, quite understandably, if 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 one um, if one candidate breaches our, our our voluntary code, then you know. He, other candidates will feel that they're at a disadvantage if they don't also put up posters.
2: Okay, Larry, thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. Larry Magner is uh, the chair of uh, the Louth Tidy Towns Together group. Now, that story about Trim uh, from the Meath Chronicle today, uh, and uh, that's uh, this week's edition of uh, the paper. In fact, all of uh, the local newspapers are in your shops, it being Wednesday morning, and Maggie Maguire is here to tell us what's on the front page. Is how are you, Maggie.
5: Hi, Michael. How you doing? Well, um, as you would expect, there's wide coverage in the Dundalk-based papers, the Argus and the Dundalk Democrat, of the weekend of tragedy in the Carlingford-Cooley area with the three tragic deaths um, in the area um, over the course of the weekend. All of the papers are reporting on the sense of devastation in the area and the impact that the tragedies have had on the local community. Um, The Dundalk Democrat is also reporting um, on news that Light County Council has started to reissue home loans again after a recent freeze. Mm. The council say that they're currently taking applications for the Rebuilding Ireland Home Grants. This kind of goes back to a story we covered a couple of weeks ago when the housing director in the council, Paddy Donnelly, confirmed that they had been given a directive to cease issuing loans under the programme over funding concerns. But it it would appear that these concerns are no longer a problem. And the council have confirmed to councillors last week in a meeting that they're recommencing appointments for the programme. that's good news for people. Indeed,
2: and the Argus reporting on what would have at one time been a council uh, issue, uh, now uh, the duty of Irish Water to look after wastewater.
5: Yeah, absolutely, Mm. it's reporting on the application by the company for the construction of a new wastewater treatment plant at Omead and basically the new plant will serve a population equivalent of a thousand um, people and at present, and this is kind of a bit of a disturbing thing to hear but uh, at present the equivalent of 800 wheelie bins of raw sewage has been discharged into Carlingford Lock every day but if permission for this new plant is is given, this practice will end, and it'll ensure a better water quality, basically, for um, the water in the lock, and will make make sure that every water go- every water source gun in there gets mm. the appropriate
2: treatment. Okay, The big fire in uh, Drogheda at Mill makes for the front page of uh, the Drogheda Independent and uh, some alarming photographs to oh, go with absolutely. It, yeah.
5: mm. it's, a, it's a I hate using the word impressive but you know what I mean mm. in the context that I mean. It, it is um, a really impressive picture on the front page of both of the local papers actually and the headline in the Drogheda Independent sums it all up really by saying history up in flames. Um, there's a lot of coverage in both of the Local papers about that, and there's also a detailed report on on the mill's colourful history and about the many companies and people that worked there over its its 200 years, and a lot of regret and sadness at its destruction been been you know covered in the pages. Yeah. Um, there's also coverage in the DI from uh, Combined Plans from light County Council and their Mead counterparts to provide a green greenway between Drighde and Mornington, and um, the route has been described as a, a tourist and local recreational route, and it's um, basically progressing to the next stage of planning after it was pre- presented to um, Mead Council at a meeting last week and the funding for application has been submitted. Um, Apparently council officials have met with residents along the planned route and while some concerns have been raised, you know, overall the support for the project, so a, con- a public consultation process will take place and the council are encouraging landowners to attend and discuss any issues that they have.
2: And the leader, as you say, Maggie, also leads uh, with uh, that big fire, but it, it focuses on what might have caused the fire.
5: Absolutely, I mean it, it basically echoes the comments that uh, the Chief Fire Officer Eamon Mulf made on the programme here as well earlier in the week about the fact that they believed the fire was started deliberately and the investigation are ongoing into that. Um, The paper also reports that during his visit to the town as the guest of honour for the St Patrick's Day Parade, um, the Turkish ambassador to Ireland announced that the tourist town of Kusadasi has requested a twinning with Drogheda. Um, Mr Burhan says that his country takes twinning very seriously and the only pair with towns or cities that the field have a real connection with. So the news of this twinning has been warmly received by the mayor of the town who's saying that it could bring valuable business investment opportunities to the area.
2: Indeed, there's an interest National uh, focus uh, on events uh, from uh, the leader this week. Yeah, absolutely.
5: Mm. In his uh, his leader view piece this week, Des Grant um, outlines his paper's oppos- opposition to the annual New York City trip made by Laid County Council officials. Um, this year, there was a three man delegation of um, Thomas McAvoy, John McGuinness and Councillor Liam Riley. They made the trip to the states at the cost of an estimated four thousand euro each. While well, meanwhile, back at home, the council pulled out of funding for uh, pulled funding for the Mar- maritime. Festival because it couldn't um, come up with the money basically to fund it. And Des is arguing the point that the trip was unnecessary and that any promotional material could have been emailed or posted and the money saved could be used to fund events like the Maritime Festival or other events for the mm-hmm. local okay.
2: community well, I'm sure the uh, councillors or the officials uh, who made uh, the decision to send the delegation might have a, a different viewpoint. Uh, mm-hmm. The Meath Chronicle I uh, mentioned uh, that story from Trim, uh, but they lead with uh, that housing seminar that was held by SIPTU, uh, uh, which we heard about last week. Yeah, absolutely.
5: John Regan was on talking to us about it and it's the front page story this week, in this week's edition. And basically it it, it makes a lot of the points um, that were... basically said to the people who went there, there were their keynote speaker Father Peter McVeary spoke very passionately on the issue of homelessness and he condemned the current system of home provision as dysfunctional and he's warning that you know unless we take action now we're basically moving from a homeless crisis to a homeless catastrophe within the next two to three years which is obviously a very worrying thing to hear mm-hmm. and then on the inside pages we're hearing a very sad story from Maureen Judge and Trim, she's a grandmother who is in, in poor health, she's been waiting for a hip replacement for over three years now um, she waited initially for, uh, for two years for her initial appointment that took place in March of last year. She had a follow-up meeting with a consultant in December of last year as well. But as of yet, she's still waiting for a date to be set for her operation. And she's just, you know, basically the, the story in there talks about the excruciating pain that she's living with on, on a daily basis. She's saying that she, she would describe her life as a living hell. She can't shop or clean her house or even sleep because of the constant pain. And she's saying that she can do nothing really but sit in a chair and, and read a book. which Okay, is, yeah. Quite, to hear.
2: quite quite, often the case and uh, I think uh, the operation itself is somewhat miraculous and mm-hmm. uh, people recover very quickly and uh, how their lives change as a result thanks uh, for that Maggie some very interesting stories in the local papers today people might want to comment on them uh, because uh, you're taking calls and you'll be back in a, a few yeah. moments with uh, those comments if you do want to comment on what you've been hearing there something else perhaps you heard this morning or if there's an issue you'd like to raise with us as always our telephone number is eighteen fifty seven one five nine five eight.
3: Michael,
2: Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, the Irish Times reported yesterday that all third level colleges should be obliged to provide classes on sexual consent for students or risk losing state funding. It's a report that was commissioned by the Minister for Higher Education, Mary Mitchell O'Connor and looks at a st- series of steps required to help create safer and more respectful campuses. We're joined by Nolan Blackwell who's the Chief Executive Officer of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Good morning to and thanks for joining us on on the programme. I I think you like the idea of sexual consent classes being mandatory, but this is a a draft report uh, and suggests uh, that colleges would be judged on the progress they make or not in implementing these changes on an annual basis. Uh, uh, It's something that's obviously required uh, given uh, the uh, problems that have been reported. Uh, A survey of more than 2,700 students recently found that 16% of respondents had experienced unwanted sexual contact
6: Yes, and we certainly find that's backed up by the information that comes into us from people, so we get a lot of uh, young students in here who have experienced sexual harassment, sexual abuse, rape with other college students or in situations of college uh, socialising or just in the course of their work. And we also hear that on the National 24-Hour Helpline that we run. So we know it happens. And the thing is, there seems to be such a disconnect between what we know happens on the ground, what the USI survey knows, what people know from their day-to-day experience. There is sexual abuse on campus, there is rape on campus, and then what comes out from the universities. Because to look at university reports... It, you would think there was no such thing. The numbers are tiny. They do not reflect reality in life, in the country or in our campuses. So I think if this draft report comes out as is being reported at the moment and if it is adopted, it will go further than just consent classes because what it will require is that the mindset of the universities change, that they take on board the fact that there is a real harm done where there's sexual abuse, where there's rape, where there's sexual harassment. People are actually harmed by it. And if they want to create safe places, safe universities and colleges... Then this is something they have to tackle, not only by making consent classes available, but also by ensuring that people have somewhere safe to disclose. And by investigating
2: allegations and then recording incidents.
6: Yeah, and and so, so this will do two things. First of all, it will give people comfort and courage. If this is done properly, people will be able to report when sexual abuse and harassment happens, when rape happens. They'll be able to get the help that they need. And equally importantly, the person who carries out that harmful activity can be addressed in a system in a proper way. And that abuse can stop because the other thing we know from everything we hear is that if it is allowed to continue, people think it's okay, and they continue with it, uh, they will go on to harm more people, they will do more harm. So there's a, it's, a, it's a question of, mm. of the colleges, I suppose, being asked to step up and say, we recognise that in this society, on our campus, there is a risk of sexual harassment and sexual abuse. Y- young people are being abused and being raped, actually older people as well, mm-hmm. but People on this campus are being abused and harassed. We want it to stop. We will ensure that everyone knows what the boundary should look like with consent classes, with a proper system for consent classes. And we will ensure that that Our campus has a zero tolerance of this kind of behaviour by allowing people to disclose it safely, to Mm -hmm. be supported, and then to have those who carry it out stop doing it. And that brings
2: us to the question of why is there a need for consent classes? Uh, Why is it that there are such high levels of rape uh, and assault on students, and in particular, I think, on first years? Is it that people believe that it is okay? And if that is the case, why is it the case?
6: Michael, it's one of the saddest things when people contact us or when we ask them uh, that so often people will say, I just didn't have the language. I didn't know how to stop. I didn't know how to say stop. I was egged on by my friends. People People can set out to do harm without a doubt. People can set out to rape and abuse somebody else. They can mean to do it. But an awful lot of the harm that is done to young people and by young people is done without a proper understanding of what the boundaries should be. So the reality is that while our young people are being brought up to get the points to go to college, uh, while they are learning that they have to, I suppose, maybe learn how to cook uh, if they go away from home, uh, they have to learn how to manage money, what they're not being taught and it needs to start much earlier, of course, is they're not being taught how to handle themselves emotionally, how to manage relationships. And as a result of that, again and again, we come across people who have done harm nearly by mistake or by not knowing they were doing harm. Mm -hmm. So I think this is the purpose of consent classes or healthy relationship education is Allowing people to understand that it's not just about what you want, that this is about what two people want or whatever number of people are in the group want, that the behaviour must be consensual, because if it's not consensual, it's harmful. And it is, I suppose, when you're growing up, you're so conscious of yourself and trying to find your own place in life that there's a need to... Step back sometimes and say, and this is how you have to behave in these situations with other people. You have to listen to other people. Mm. You have to identify that they're consenting to the activity. You have to keep checking in with that. And you have to understand consent in a very wide variety of cases. So it would be lovely if you could send people to college with a manual that just sets out. You can do this. You okay. can't do
2: that. You may have just preempted my next question. Send them to college rather than afterwards, uh, because uh, there is a risk, is there not, that this could be a case of fire fighting—that young people are sexually active at a, a very young age, uh, and that perhaps uh, this type of education should be provided to them in secondary.
6: Yeah, so, we maintain uh, it far too late, um, yeah. and 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 that's why we concentrate to a great extent on secondary school education, and uh, and we're even saying like. In secondary school, we have to look again at the ages. The ages are dropping, not necessarily where people are having sexual activity themselves, but where they're looking at sexual activity and getting to know about it. So we believe it must start much, much sooner. In fact, Michael, you can start Uh, You can start education about respectful behaviour at a very early age indeed, and it doesn't necessarily Mm. have to do with sexual activity, but you could stop bullying, you could stop abuse all along the way. I suppose what's important about this report is that it comes from Mary Mitchell O'Connor who's the Minister for State for Higher Education and this is the bit that she can do it will be matched by something else that's coming out over the summer and that is a review that is going into how consent is taught in our schools and that is due that's being done by the Curriculum Assessment Unit and that's due to report in the summer that will make a companion piece to this and then it really will be over to the Minister for Education Joe McHugh okay. to uh, to press on and to ensure that consent which hasn't, the, the way in which consent is taught in our schools hasn't changed for 20 years. The world has changed, young people have changed, lots has changed in 20 years, but our consent curriculum is back in those pre-internet ages and to a great extent.
2: You mentioned your 24-hour helpline and that is 1-800-77-8888 if uh, people do want to speak with a, a trained counsellor. We'll leave it there for the moment, Nollian, thank you indeed thank for you, joining Michael. us. Nolan Blackwell is the Chief Executive Officer of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Michael,
3: Michael
2: Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Maggie McGuire joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us uh, this morning. Welcome back, Maggie.
5: Thanks very much. Um, I will start with some of the comments that we had left over from yesterday's programme and basically Anne was contacting us to say that she thought it was heartbreaking to see the mill destroyed like that on Friday. Um, It's such a part of the town's history and to see it on fire was horrific. Um, Obviously the main thing is that no one was hurt but it's still terrible to see the building go like that. She also wanted to pay tribute to the great work and dedication of the firefighters who worked tirelessly to bring the fire under control Mm -hmm. and put themselves in danger to do so. So Mm -hmm. obviously we'd all echo that sentiment. And Charlie and Rohini was in contact with us in relation to our discussion on teenage drinking on West Street on Paddy's Day and he wants to know where do the young people get the money from to buy this alcohol that's a, a question that was asked by a lot of people on the phone yesterday was it? To, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. actually I think
2: a lot of people have a, uh, a lot of young people have a, a lot of money as it would seem This is mm. it well they seem yeah. to be getting it mm. from
5: somewhere um, and in relation to um, Ross's va- vox pop on snakes in Ireland um, Marie was in contact to say that St Patrick didn't get rid of all the snakes in Ireland there's still plenty of them operating in the doll, she said mm. and um, Margaret was in contact with us again in relation to teenage drinking She says that children have never had as much as they do today, but yet they're never happy. They always want, want, want. Nobody can discipline them now, not even their parents. And if anybody does try, they end up in court that's the whole reason we have such unruliness, and social media has brought it to a whole new level she says
2: Okay well interesting thoughts there hold that uh, thought yourself for a a moment uh, because uh, we've uh, some concern locally as well about uh, some graffiti that has reappeared Fine Chancellor Paddy Mead has come in to us uh, to tell us more good morning to you and uh, thanks for coming in Uh, this is between Newtown and R D. Yeah
7: good morning Michael and yeah uh, it's the eighth time uh, to my knowledge that it has happened so the the between uh, the town of RD and Newtown uh, going past Shannonless Cross uh, pretty much from Shannonless Cross to RD look at there's racial sectarian graffiti it's happened eight times Um, it's quite annoying you know for the locals in that um, the person who's doing it look at I don't know what to say I, I assume they have issues themselves. There'd be a lot of often spelling mistakes and what to be saying. There'd be things that wouldn't make sense and, and, and such. Mm. But there, it's costing money to clean and not only is it the roads and the bridges but personal pro- property has been painted as well uh, which has cost people personally thousands of euro to, to clean their own properties.
2: Is there a Jewish community locally because these are anti-Semitic messages? Uh,
7: no, not, not to, to my knowledge or, or if there is nothing significant. Mm. Um, but you know you have them and then you have stars david's beside him and then you have messages like go home foreigners and things like that it, it doesn't it isn't coherent um and that's what makes me think you know sadly it's someone who, who's not well you know and, and a lot of people out there are, and are, are, you know just different opinions on it. some people are laughing at this person thinking just the guy can't spell you, you know a lot of stuff does, doesn't mm-hmm. make sense um and it's not like i'm looking for this person to be punished but i think this person needs to to understand uh that there is people that are being offended by what they are doing Um, and you know now it's been going on now over five years and that and it's um, quite sporadic you know Mm. um, now thankfully due to the modern uh, CTV and that uh, we've got some images of the person um, not uh, now but, um, and I'm sure if they persist there will be better and more images got mm. of them which will hopefully lead to them being caught. Do you have your suspicions over who it might be? Look, at, uh, you know it, it's, it's the ongoing talk in pubs and things like that and there is def- definitely now uh, suspicions especially uh, the CTV quality we just have at the moment mm. isn't the greatest but it definitely has narrowed the field down um, and look, you know, like person out there if they're listening you know the reality is if they come out again they will be uh, on good camera quality TV and they will be caught um, and in some ways mm. you'd nearly like them to come out and be caught but but I'd prefer if they just stopped because like today I'll be going
0: out Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby It's me Kiki Palmer
7: with some of the lads from the council and we'll be cleaning it but that's the eight days of councils you know in a, in an mm. area
2: where has, has this person been approached uh, i mean if so many people are, are relatively confident uh, at least that they know who it is has somebody said something to him
7: well i definitely haven't and
2: uh, i presume it's a he it's well, well, a, a,
7: I, I, a male I, no it could mm, it could mm, be a female mm, mm. Uh, and you know. I don't like to to, narr- to say specifically until we know for certain because you know you live in the, mm. the world now with slander and defamation and unless you know for certain who it is you you nearly can't say um
2: but but you don't believe it's a, a right wing fascist nazi do you no uh, no you uh, believe it's somebody uh, who needs help
7: yeah i i would think it's 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 a person that has issues themselves uh sadly um and you know like i i I don't think they they probably appreciate that their message is going to no one. The only thing is a few individuals who live along that road are having their personal property damaged, mm. and you know to get the paint off your own walls, you often have to just repaint the entire the entire wall or and your gates and that and that that costs money um and I don't think they appreciate that. It, the only mm. impact they're having is on individuals. The roads themselves, look at the council come out, they'll clean it. We mm. can get over that. But it's the individuals that are being hurt.
2: Right. Well, it does appear to be the result of distorted thinking, and I can understand why people locally are upset at uh, what's been written uh, as well as the fact uh, that uh, the place is being destroyed as you say Uh, you're looking to uh, improve Betty's town not just you but uh, people locally and a a town meeting is taking place this evening yeah
7: and Mm -hmm. this is a this is a positive story Uh, so Mead County Council are currently preparing a public realm realm, uh, plan for later in Betty's town Morrington and I suppose that's kind of confusion to what that means but basically it's, it's a plan for the area going forward uh, Laytown, Betystown, Morrington combined now is the third biggest town in Mead and a lot of people find that hard to believe that there's a bigger population there than there is in Trim or Dumbine or places like this so in Closna this evening at 6.30 uh, the council is holding a workshop um, and look at, they're in my opinion, there was a lot of mistakes made in the area in the past. There was lots of land zoned for housing and housing and housing and not a whole lot else. Um, but it's important that the public and, and get involved. If if they have a different opinion, you know, it, it's important that the council hear it. Now, I, I hope they, they have been hearing it. But, and, you know, we have good councillors in the area, and I hope we include myself there, that that are working for a better future for the area. But it's important that we hear from everyone's opinion because some people might have different ideas and maybe good ideas. Um, so, 6.30 this evening, Closnaghenge, uh, anyone in the Laytown, Bettystown, Morrington area, is welcome to come to the workshop. It probably okay. only last an hour or so, yeah, but right. it could mm-hmm. be a useful thing to come to.
2: OK, thanks for that. Uh, local Finnegal Councillor Paddy Mead. Now, let's go back uh, to what you've been saying to us on the phones. Maggie, you have some more comments for us.
5: Yeah, I have actually one left over from yesterday as well that I wanted to bring to you. It's in relation to your Viagogo uh, piece mm. on the programme yesterday. We had a lot of reaction to that, but we got one comment into the show from somebody who didn't want to give us her name. But basically, what they said was, Hi, Michael, I bought tickets from Viagogo for, for a concert that's in September of this year. Now, the price that came up wasn't the price that I finished up paying, and um, what should have been 273 euro for three tickets. I ended up when it, when it ended up that when I paid it out, they had taken 833 euro and 40 cent out of my account mm. so when I phoned them they said they couldn't do anything to help me that I should just uh, kind of relist them to sell them on which mm. um, this caller was disgusted about and they're saying that they're down over 800 euro when there's a, not a hope in hell that they would have paid that sort of money out for tickets originally
2: well, is arguing it has uh, the constitutional right to charge as much as it, it likes uh, for tickets we'll be hearing about this uh, a little bit later on with uh, Noel Rock who's uh, Finnegal TD and has introduced legislation which would outlaw outlaw above cost selling of concert tickets and tickets to a, a events like this. Uh, but uh, as we heard In the programme yesterday, the Minister of Business, Heather Humphreys, has received legal advice through a senior counsel on behalf of Viagogo, suggesting that this would be in breach of constitutional property rights to put a cap on how much you can charge above the cost, the original cost of the sale of the tickets. Having said that, uh, the Competition Consumer Protection Commission is looking to hear from people. If you have bought tickets off Viagogo, and we will be talking about this later, and we will be giving out the contact details again later but if you have bought tickets of via Gogo, please contact uh, the competition consumer protection commission that's the ccpc they have a helpline and that's 1890 or 432 432 ie 432 432 or ccpc.ie is the website and you can get more information there and as i say we'll be repeating that a little bit later on
5: Okay, and um, moving on to this morning's programme, we had a lot of reaction to your earlier interview with uh, Larry Magner from uh, the Tidy Tens Together group. Mm,
2: About posters, yeah.
5: Absolutely, about posters. Yeah, Mary was in contact to say she fully supports the idea of a poster ban. They're a complete eyesore and serve no purpose whatsoever. Um, She says that, in fact, they're a source of antisocial behaviour. She's seen them defaced or set on fire, and they create more rubbish in the area where they've been put up. She said that uh, Larry is right when he says the candidates can use social media, local radio or newspapers to peddle their wares without having to put giant posters up all <laughs> don't over Don't tell the, the candidates that, uh, <laughs> please. <laughs> yeah. And on the same subject, uh, Tom thinks the poster ban is a great idea and should be introduced all over the country. It's more environmentally friendly and it's also more people friendly because we the people don't have to be looking at them. Hmm. His words, not mine. Okay. And uh, Sheila was in contact as well on the same issue. She said that she would fully support a ban. There are danger um, on the roads at every election because they put up all over traffic junctions and, and usually end up causing some kind of visual obstruction for uh, motorists. She said that uh, she has no doubt whatsoever that an election without posters would be warmly welcomed by the people.
2: Paddy maid, would you support a ban? <laughs> It'd
7: it, it suit me because I'm a sitting councillor, um, yeah. but, but I would worry about the, the new candidates mm. that people don't know. But but yeah, I, you I would, of course, if, if yeah. all the other yeah, candidates yeah, yeah, wanted, because yeah, it yeah, saved yeah. me a few pounds as well. I'm, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
2: Thanks for that. Okay. Any more? I do have more, yeah.
5: but I'm just Looking at the clock, okay. so I'm wondering should we try give and give us one,
2: one quick comment before you finish uh, okay, up? Okay,
5: well, Rosie said. was in contact with us in relation to the piece with uh, Nolene Blackwell about the issue of consent, <clears throat> and she would fully agree with uh, the introduction of consent classes. But she would question the timing and when mm, we should do mm, that. She mm, thinks mm. that having them in secondary school or uh, that having them in, in college is like closing the gate after the horse is bolted, she said. And um, she thinks that these classes need to be taught at the start of secondary school, if not earlier, okay. maybe even fifth or sixth class.
2: All right, yeah. Indeed, uh, I think uh, that echoes what Nolene Blackwell had to say about it uh, as well Thanks Maggie and uh, thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us and if we get more time we'll come back to some more of those comments a little bit later on in uh, the programme If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always we'd love to hear from you, Maggie and Ross are taking calls today and our telephone number is 1850 715
6: 958
3: Michael Michael Reed on on
2: LMFM. Now as you know uh, the trade unions representing nurses were back uh, in front of uh, the Labour Court, yes today. Uh, The issue has been adjourned until next week uh, whilst unions uh, take time to consider proposals that are are being made by management. Uh, Let's talk about where the dispute with nurses is at the moment with Paul Bell, divisional organiser with the sip 2 Health Division. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, uh, There was no real negotiation yesterday, let alone white smoke, was there? Well,
8: first of all, there wasn't meant to be a negotiation because the parties involved in this dispute uh, basically had a conversation over the weekend period before St. Patrick's weekend and it was determined that no progress could be made. And those conversations and negotiations took place under the auspices of the Workplace Relations Commission. Issues concerning rosters, mm. uh, hours of work, mm. deployment, uh, those type of very sensitive issues for nursing professionals uh, and indeed midwives uh It was deemed, obviously, by the union side that they could not progress uh, on on that agenda. This is the the terms
2: of the contract of the new grade status for nursing, which would uh, allow shifts of four hours or maybe 10 hours. Yes at the sole discretion of management and that if it was a 10-hour shift, you could be two hours in one hospital, two hours in another yes. hospital, and maybe uh, the remaining time in an, a, a third institution. Yeah, well, and, so, so
8: you add the demands and uh, management would probably maintain the position, well, we are entitled to put those demands forward because this is a productivity agreement. Uh, it is protected under the public service agreement. However, the the funds made available for this new yeah. enhanced contract have to be self-financing and that is where the crux of it is Uh, what was referred to the Labour Court uh, as we understood it was basically we couldn't make progress on those issues we believe that the management are attempting to have a smash and grab on a number of uh, uh, concessions which they are demanding which they couldn't get at the national talks under the public service stability agreement. And And that's where the sides are locked.
2: This is more work for more pay, basically, is it? Absolutely. Mm.
8: This is where the position has been put forward. Mm. Uh, But remember, uh, nurses uh, nurses and midwives uh, would have said that under the public service uh, pay commission mm. certain awards were made for their allowances to increase allowances and to apply allowances where there were none and then obviously there was uh, within that uh, a clear understanding that a, an expert review would be set up to look into the work of Norson and midwifery professionals, mm-hmm. how they how they are treated within the workplace and indeed where they are comparable to other all allied health professional grades.
2: And that was the process uh, that SIP2 had signed up to.
8: Yeah, that's the process. <coughs> actually, <coughs> the, all unions had signed well, up yeah. to uh, except that obviously the, uh, a different strategy was adopted sure. by their comrades in the INMO. But SIP2
2: signed up to that strategy yeah. and that was uh, the sole strategy yeah. that you were following. Absolutely. The INMO signed up to that strategy and then decided that it wanted an additional pay increase and that led to, to the strike action.
8: Well I wouldn't say that, I would say understand that our, coll- our colleagues were following a different strategy mm. uh, at the end of the day these matters have to be resolved through dialogue there is scope to have a conversation and negotiation for productivity, that's where we are now I think that uh, there is a deep concern amongst no- no- sorry, and, and midwifery mm. professionals that the ask from the government is quite alarming it's too much, uh, It makes the walking day very, very difficult to understand. And obviously, don't forget, Michael, this campaign would have started off with the government understanding that there is a difficulty in recruiting and retaining nursing and midwifery professionals. This proposal for the new enhanced role does not seem to actually deal with that issue. In fact, some nurses would say maybe we're better Mm -hmm. off the way we are than signing into something where we've no control over the way we walk, how we walk, how we get to walk, where our profession goes. It's
2: very confusing, isn't it? Uh, I think it's it's probably unusual uh, for a dispute uh, to end up in a a vacuum like this, uh, because it it appears to be a vacuum. Uh, Nurses uh, took to the picket lines, uh, took strike action, uh, decided to stop striking just ahead of a three-day rolling strike uh, on the basis uh, that uh, the INMO executive had uh, agreed to a resolution. That should have been voted on by now, but that vote has been postponed. Uh, I'm not sure nurses know where they're at.
8: Well, Michael, I will speak for Two, mm. and the position very clearly is for us, is that we always said this issue would be complex. Mm. We always said that. We have concerns about how we're going to get through this process, of course, and what happens to the nursing and midwifery profession and indeed what's not being discussed at this stage I suppose because of the intensity Mm. is how do patients benefit from what happens into the future that's the other issue which obviously uh, healthcare professionals are always concerned about Uh, the complexity is where it is now you have a situation where the government is demanding huge concessions on productivity Uh, in fact some of the concessions are such that if the government received those concessions, we're not clear that they actually would know what to do with them. And mm. uh, in, in the in the idea of developing nursing and midwifery professionals, but also caring for patients. We actually think that this whole proposal is, has not quite rightly thought through. Nevertheless, we are where we are. Uh, those issues you earlier described, they're before the Labour court. What has happened over the last 24 hours is this other issues are starting to emerge where quite understandably... There are concerns about making sure that there are, is funding available uh, for any future moves in, in relation to payments for nurses. Uh, and obviously the other issue uh, of concern is to ensure uh, that uh, the independent expert review, mm. there's a clear understanding of the composition of that, a clear understanding what the terms of reference are. But there are issues that SIPTU are definitely involved in trying to make sure that they move on and we would prefer, that, obviously, that some progress would be made before we reach the Labour Court next Monday again. Uh,
2: and how is uh, the HSA and the Department of Health proposing recruiting more nurses? Because that was at the heart of the dispute, wasn't it?
8: Well, it, the, the Department of Health and the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, uh, which is the main government mm. department, uh, uh, I would say, suggest that's leading this particular negotiation on b- on behalf of the employer, uh, is maintaining a line which has been very strong about the concessions that have been demanded, the productivity that has been demanded. Uh, they've obviously said about uh, their objectives having a certain understanding of what they believe is going on in the health service. What has not been put to us in all of this new enhanced contract mm. is how that actually attracts people to work in the nursing and midwifery profession mm. that does not factor into this n- discussion on that side of the table. It's fi- fi- uh, featuring in the discussion that we're putting forward on the base of saying, "Well, we need to come out of this making things better and not making things worse." Uh, I think that basically the Department of Public Expenditure Reform, and for the listeners, that's just as we say, that's the other element of the Department of Finance. Mm. Are very it's much, the purse strings, are it, very yeah, much yeah, yeah. Uh, holding a line. Which, for, first of all, they are very concerned that other trade unions will make claims, and as you can see, there's a deafening silence in, in some quarters where other trade unions, quite rightly, their their members are watching what's developing hmm. to see how how what that may affect their but, objectives as well. And that's I, that's a, obviously a factor for consideration for government.
2: But the dispute here was that you needed to pay nurses more so that you could attract more people to nurse in Ireland. Yes. And the resolution seems to be that nurses will get paid more, but they'll do more work for that money.
8: Well, Michael, in blunt terms, it doesn't matter whether we walk in a car factory, we walk in the, in the local shop, uh, or we walk in a healthcare profession. If you enter into negotiations on productivity, that's what the, the employer is going to demand. And then, obviously, somewhere in the middle, a negotiate settlement has to come about. What's happened here is that we believe, in Sip to, that the government are taking a fairly high-handed approach in the demands that, that are being made and yet we still don't understand if those demands will actually realise the objective of recruiting, retaining nurses and caring for patients, both in institutions and into the community. Mm. And the, the what's being put forward in the contract, it's the employer is not explaining how they see that actually working and how they see it actually working to the benefit of the patient. Mm. And that's not been explained. It's all down to the understanding of its productivity, uh, we will pay being the government, we will pay X amount and you will give Y amount. And mm-hmm. that's where the negotiation is. And I suppose anybody listening to this mm-hmm. interview would say, Yes, well, I walk in a, a workplace, and that sounds like something that would go on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, the the Workplace Relations Commission and the Labour Court are very much of the understanding that, whatever the settlement is here, one, it's inside the public service stability agreement, and secondly, it is based on productivity, which must be self financing.
2: And does SIP2 see scope for negotiation? Uh, is uh, the contract uh, something that you're willing to negotiate?
8: The contract being put forward to us, we did try to negotiate. Uh, the government have held a very strong line. We've made it quite clear uh, from the weekend before last that uh, that's the government's final position. We will put the Labour Court recommendation to our members that exists at the moment. We will put the uh, contract to our members, Mm. uh, but we do not see ourselves recommending uh, the Labour Court recommendation or the contract to our members. We believe that it's too much of an ask. And remember something, Michael, what we haven't featured yet is that there's been no engagement or no negotiation for those nurses working in mental health who are also involved in mm. various types of disputes. Uh, so that has yet to come mm. forward. And obviously all sides are watching how this plays out.
2: And as I understand it, uh, they're negotiating or will negotiate with uh, the Labour Court under a separate process, uh, the Psychiatric Nurses
8: Association. The nurses that SIP to represent uh, in, in psychiatric nursing, uh, actually we'll be meeting them today with their AGM in Liberty Hall. We're making it quite clear to them that there's a long road to go uh, there has to be intensive negotiations, and what has been proposed uh, in the Labour Court recommendation mm. uh, for acute nursing uh, and that type of contract will not transpose into mental health nursing. We're very clear about that. We've also informed government of why that is. If government wish to listen to those arguments, well, then we can make some progress. If they're not willing to listen, to the arguments being put forward or the concerns of mental health nurses well then we feel that we're going to end up in a similar road uh, as the acute uh, nurses have ended up at this mm. stage there's a lot more to be done during the week uh, we've uh, made it quite clear to the government we're prepared to have engaging with them on the outstanding issues the, the seeking we make progress which are critical mm. uh, because we've always said in SIP2 that we would not go to our members unless we had the complete picture what's and all whatever's it's available that's what we're asking you to consider. Uh, you make your mind up as a member what what you see best. Obviously, uh, National nursing Committee uh, in SIP2 would make a recommendation uh, what they see as best. At the moment, we think that's going to be a very, very difficult challenge going ahead. How difficult? Uh, uh, well, if, if government maintain that position yeah. uh, and are rigid, uh, we see, uh, really, it's going to be very difficult to understand how we can reach an accommodation. And remember... But the demands on the acute nursing setting is one thing. People nurses work in general hospital setting or work in maternity. Mental health nursing is a completely different environment, uh, and if the if the government think that you can just transpose that across and say that's what we're looking for, well, we're saying to them, but well, then you don't understand mental health nursing. Okay, you don't understand. The, the kind of patients mm. and the service users that are depending on that service.
2: But this has to come to a head, uh, doesn't it? Oh, uh, it and has to come to a head in the next couple of weeks. And I, I take it uh, we'll have a clearer picture, let's say, by the beginning of April.
8: Well, Michael, you know something, uh, I'm afraid to commit to that because I would have expected to come here to you today and say, listen, we've mm. put our case forward to the Labour Court. We've made the points that we're concerned about. We're asking the Labour Court to give some assistance and at least shaping out the parameters in which the employer can negotiate with us and we can negotiate with them. Uh, But yes, uh, yesterday, obviously, that didn't happen. Uh, The chairman of the Labour Court and the members of the Labour Court seen fit to say, well, let's give it another week uh, and let's be very clear when the parties arrive in here next Monday, the issues that we are going to adjudicate upon, which are the issues that have been referred to us by the Workplace Relations Commission at the request of the parties.
2: Okay. Paul Bell, thank you thank for you. coming in to us uh, this morning. Paul Bell, Divisional Organiser with SIP2's Health Division. Michael,
3: Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
2: FM. Now, MPs are warning fans in the UK to avoid using uh, the secondary ticketing site via GoGo until it fully complies with consumer law. This is a new report by the Digital Culture, Media and Sport Select Committee in the House of Commons, which is advising consumers to avoid uh, Avoid using Viagogo as the best option until Viagogo is considered to be fully compliant with consumer law. In the UK, it would seem as though consumers are much better protected by law than they are here. That may change under legislation which has been introduced by Fine Gael, TD, Noel Rock, uh, which would uh, ban the sale of tickets for above the face value. Uh, but as we heard on the programme yesterday in our report on how Viagogo reports, Biogogo has made a legal submission on this legislation to the Minister for Business, Heather Humphreys, suggesting that it would be a constitutional breach of property rights to ban the resale of tickets above face value. Let's talk to Noel Rock, who is that Fine Gael TD, who has introduced this legislation together with Fianna Fáil TD, Stephen Donnelly. Good morning to you once again and thank you indeed for joining us. First of all, you may wish to comment on what this comment Select Committee has been saying about ViaGogo in its most recent report.
9: Good morning, Michael, and thank you for having me on. Yeah, no, I, I completely welcome uh, the Select Committee's interest in this issue and the report on this issue. Uh, this report clearly shines a uh, light on the issue uh, of ticket touting and on the issue of ViaGogo's business practices. Um, it's a very detailed report. Um, I had a look at it last night. Uh, I have to say, it goes through everything with a fine tooth comb, uh, leaves no stone unturned, and leaves no doubt in any reasonable person's mind that this type of business practice should not be tolerated, uh, that this type of business practice is leaving people shortchanged very often, and that this type of business practice is not in the interest of the public, and accordingly, it should be regulated and should be legislated for. That's what they recommend, and that's what we want to do here. We want to be um, the first in Europe, in effect, bring in wide-ranging legislation on this issue uh, and to make sure that normal punters and normal fans aren't left out of pocket. Now, I know you've been uh, following this doggedly uh, before, and we've talked many times on this Mm -hmm. issue, um, and it's taken a long time to get to this point. But we are now finally at a point where the legislation uh, has passed second stage in the Dáil, and where it's coming before my committee, the Enterprise Committee, in a matter of weeks. Uh, and we hope to have it uh, concluded before the
2: summer. Is it possible that we need a, a referendum to allow people to sell tickets at exorbitant or to stop people uh, to sell from selling tickets at exorbitant prices?
9: Uh, thankfully not, even though, you know, if it was a referendum, it would pass with uh, with Flying Colours. I uh, commissioned a uh, professional polling in association with the Irish Daily Mail uh, some year ago on this issue. A professional polling company called Ireland Thinks did mm. the polling and they found that 91% of the public were in favour of effectively banning ticket touting, even if it meant job losses. And we included that caveat within the question. Even if it meant job losses within viaGogo, hmm. 91% of the Irish public were in favour of that. However, it doesn't need to go through a referendum. That's a bit of a red herring being put forward by viaGogo. If you have any tickets there to hand right now. No, it's
2: a red herring that's being put forward on their behalf by senior counsel in a legal submission to the department in relation to your legislation it also comes on foot of the lobbying of 17 Oireachtas members based in the Limerick area where Viagogo says hundreds of jobs are going to be lost.
9: That's right yeah well I mean you know yourself I'm sure from the years doing the show Michael that uh, you know legal opinions uh, often differ Uh, You can often get legal opinions to say one thing, and then legal opinions to say a completely different thing. Uh, But the legal advice that we received uh, from a variety of sources, uh, departmental sources, independent sources, uh, would indicate that no. If you look at the back of the ticket, the ticket will always say uh, the ticket is not your property. Mm. The ticket is effectively a token, which does not guarantee access necessarily. Therefore, it's not property property. Therefore, it's not protected under the constitutional rights in terms of property. Mm. Uh, the t- naturally enough, a ticket can never guarantee access 100%. For instance, if you're inebriated going to the door of a venue, the ticket won't guarantee you access. It's not your property per se. Uh, so accordingly, uh, it doesn't fall under the constitutional property rights, and accordingly, uh, it wouldn't be protected under the Constitution in the same way, as say, your home would be.
2: Mm. Uh, do you think go cares?
9: Uh, no, not really. I,
2: I mean, it seems as though in the UK they've uh, stuck two fingers up uh, to uh, high court uh, ruling uh, and, uh, indeed, the legislation that was given there on uh, pressurised selling.
9: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. and I think, you know, if you look at those select committee hearings of the Culture Committee in the UK, uh, they've been regularly invited to appear before Parliament. Uh, as far as I can see, they've never actually attended. I could be mistaken on that, but as far as I can see, they've certainly... Uh, declined to show at a number of hearings. Um, They they clearly, you know, their interest is in continuing to keep this show on the road for as long as possible. I think any rational person, when they look at the profits that are made off this, Mm. uh, when they look at the sharp business practices involved, would say that no, this isn't actually in anyone's interest uh, to continue this running as it is. I mean, listening to your own program yesterday, and the variety of examples of people who have been ripped off in one way or another Either they couldn't get to the show, uh, as in your own case, the ticket wasn't valid, or the ticket wasn't what they were promised. They were promised VIP tickets, and actually, they were effectively in the cheap seats, and Viagogo didn't really seem to care. I mean, they always hide behind this idea that they have a ticket guarantee, but it seems from many, many examples that I've received, when, uh, when the ticket guarantee is invoked, yeah, it's not really worth the paper that's written on, unfortunately, and that isn't in the interest of normal consumers.
2: Yeah, uh, and you know we have invited Via in, in many ways uh, to make comments on, on my own particular case, uh, and I don't want to stress on that uh, too much in, in their absence. Uh, but I, I think there is a a very. Uh, fundamental question to be asked uh, how you can be charged a, a delivery charge for something that was never delivered 5 euro per ticket as uh, I keep going on about it uh, to be delivered uh, by courier uh, and nothing ever arrived, uh, no no question of a refund there, whatever about the tickets, the validity of the tickets or anything else
9: Absolutely yeah. and I mean like look this is just yet another example mm. uh, of Viegogo not acting in the interest of the public, and not acting in the interest of consumers, sports fans and music fans uh, I think it's very regrettable uh, that they don't appear on programmes and they don't comment on
2: these issues. Well, they didn't uh, appear in front of the Common Select Committee, uh, as you say. Uh, that was empty chaired at the time. Uh, there's been many complaints of people turning up, not getting in, uh, for the reasons that I feared I wouldn't get in. Uh, somebody else is in their seat. Uh, many people turn up for the same seat. They turn up, uh, they've got a, a child's ticket, uh, and uh, they're told, I'm sorry, uh, you're a little bit old uh, to purport to be a a child, somebody else's name is on it and you've been asked for ID, the terms and conditions of the artist are are, are, uh, that uh, you have to buy the ticket yourself and that they're uh, in breach of all of that. But Viagogo at all times says that it's acting appropriately and within uh, the realms of uh, legislation.
6: Well,
9: good good for them, but uh, the the legislation is changing. Mm. and That's why we're changing the legislation. I mean, if you take any of those examples that you've used there Uh, These people who bought these tickets uh, on Viegogo or on any other website uh, were were buying, you know, under great pressure. Uh, They weren't spending three, four, five times face value uh, for the fun of it. And then to be confronted with a very embarrassing situation after already being desperate Mm. to get to this match or get to this concert. And now you can't even watch the match or the concert Mm. that you've paid three times, four times, five times face value for. That's not fair. That's not right. And accordingly... You know, we need to legislate to protect these people. And we need to legislate to protect vulnerable consumers. That's what we always do in terms of things like mobile phone roaming charges, mm-hmm. where we always had stories in the past of people going, you know, in, in border regions, particularly in North Louth, say there, uh, and ending up on the UK roaming network yep. and ending up being charged exorbitant fees for that. You know, that wasn't right. And accordingly, we brought in laws to deal with that. And this is a similar case here. Hmm. So this is a basic piece of consumer protection legislation.
2: But if you take somebody like Claire Turnham, who is a very grown up, very intelligent, capable person and has been made an MBE because of how she's brought this to the public attention. Uh, She found herself in a situation whereby over a thousand euro was taken out or a thousand pounds was taken out of her bank account. I think it was around uh, eleven hundred pounds more than she thought she had been paying. Uh, She realized then that she didn't have the money to pay the rent. Uh, She didn't realize she was paying this until it had come out of her bank account. And you've got to say to yourself, well, how is this the case? Uh, and it's not just Claire Turnham, uh, but as Claire told us, uh, she's hearing from people all of the time. The victims of Viagogo Facebook page has over nine thousand members, and you see people joining it every single day with similar complaints. And then Claire tells us that she's heard from parents of children who have actually been suicidal because of the position that they found themselves in.
9: Yeah, and I mean it is profoundly sad, Michael. Uh, we get emails. Uh, every week. Not a week goes by because my name is associated with this legislation and um, people obviously Google for solutions potentially if they're stuck in this kind of a bind where they've been misled into buying these tickets where they've bought these tickets without realising the implications or where they pay for these tickets without realising they were buying these tickets. Often people are just scoping out tickets on the website uh, they think they haven't bought them yet then they check their bank statement and lo and behold they have bought them and they paid hundreds of thousands of euro for them. And they email me in desperation and ask, Noel, I see this legislation is coming. Will it affect me? Uh, And unfortunately, the answer I can give, and it's a very sad answer, is no, obviously. uh, Legislation can't be, uh, by its nature, can't be retrospective. Uh, We can't stop things from happening in the past. All we can do from the day the legislation is enacted is to make any future transactions uh, of that nature. To be illegal, or to regulate them further, mm. um, but unfortunately for the people who have been affected of it, those who consider themselves already to be victims of Viagogo, unfortunately there is little uh, that legislation can do for them. But what we can do is use their experiences, build on their experiences, and make sure that that kind of thing doesn't happen again.
2: Uh, and It is possible that there is some protection under the existing legislation and the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission has asked uh, that people contact them if uh, they believe they've been misled in buying tickets or if uh, they believe uh, that uh, their consumer rights have been breached. Uh, And I'm sure you'd encourage people to contact the CCPC if that is the case.
9: Absolutely, I certainly would. I mean, I I have a report with them since 2016 as well. Uh, I also have a report with the Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement with regard to these uh, sharper business practices, we'll say. And um, there are investigations ongoing into these sharper business practices. And I do hope to see um, some results, um, rather than uh, you know just the legislation coming to pass, that some of the people who have been ripped
2: off in the past do get some joy out of this. Okay. And, uh, consumer helpline for the CCPC is 1890 That's 1890 432 The website is ccpc.ie. Noel Rock, thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. Thanks a lot, Michael. Take care. Thank you indeed. Fine TD for Dublin Northwest, No
9: Rock.
3: Michael, Michael Reid on LMFM.
2: Now Archbishop uh, Dermot Martin uh, says he does not believe uh, that people have a, a true sense of uh, the crisis of faith that exists in Ireland. Uh, there are many challenges facing the church in uh, this country in the area of women's issues and sexual morality where people either don't understand the church's teaching or simply reject that teaching as being out of tune with contemporary culture. He says uh, that the church must represent lay, clerical and religious, women and men, young and old and we all agree on this but nothing seems to happen. The alienation of so many women only increases. Archbishop Martin says that there is a need for a reduction and rationalisation in the number of dioceses and uh, the revision of the arcane workings of the Irish Episcopal Conference conference let's talk about this with brendan butler who represents we are church ireland good morning to you brendan and uh, morning, thanks for Michael. taking some time to be with us here on the program this morning i don't think there's anything there you disagree with
10: no no not indeed but i mean it's a very obvious fact it, there is a crisis uh, of uh, belief at the moment in especially in the christian churches you know it's not just in the catholic church also uh, mainly uh, you know in the other church of ireland but mainly in the Catholic Church. And the problem really is they don't seem to get it still, that the crisis has emerged from the scandal within the Church it's not because people have turned, you know, is uh, something wrong with Irish people or the with, way with, well, the world is going. The world is moving forward and respecting the rights of individuals, the rights of, of women. And the church has remained static mm-hmm. and not alone that, but it has scandalized the world and still c- continues to scandalize the world. I just see yesterday uh, the, the Pope refused to accept the resignation of a cardinal in France who was convicted for cover-up of sexual abuse. So, I mean, they have to be, get it, and is cardinals and bishops, all of these people have to be fired from the catholic church they're convicted by the you know by the civil courts and yet they're not the priests have been mm. but they're the minor people but when it comes to the people at the top nothing is done about it and also when he's talking about women why doesn't he propagate the idea that women should be uh, uh, all ministries in the church should be open to women uh, you know, he talks about women alienation. Nothing is done. At least, I think, down in Limerick, uh, the Bishop of Limerick, he called a synod. That is, that all the people in Dublin, Catholics who are still Catholics, uh, are asked to come forward and to attend the synod. And a synod means it's just a big assembly where everyone gets their say what should be done. Mm. But. That is not done by him. He just, he he continues, you know, at the top, says these things, but does nothing about them. And then about, uh, you know, he's talking about primary schools also, you know, that uh, that, uh, teachers are being, uh, you know, uh, not all teachers in primary, Catholic primary schools have belief. And yet they are being sort of forced, really, to teach something that they don't believe in. And I think what should happen there, as has has happened in secondary schools, there should be specialised teachers in primary schools, like in secondary schools, who are specialised in teaching religion.
2: Okay, and there has been talk uh, of women deacons in the early church, and if that was the case, if it makes the case now for women priests.
10: But uh, that that commission uh, that the Pope put together... It's still talking, hasn't come up with anything. It's uh, actually now is two years in existence, and it doesn't seem to be moving anywhere. So this is the problem in the Catholic Church. There's no movement. It goes to Rome. The Pope puts forward a commission, and it's stymied there, and nothing seems to happen. Mm -hmm. And so so the easiest way is for ordinary people just to walk away. But, but people like ourselves and we are church and in other groups around Ireland, we, we, we say, look, this is our church and we want, to, it, we want it to survive, but not in the present structure. We want, we want, we believe that the message of Jesus of Nazareth is a very important message and it should, but it shouldn't be sort of what's happening is that message is being blocked by the Catholic Church. People can't see the message because of the of the messenger, you know, the message mm. is, is, is sort of blurred, because, and you wouldn't blame people, because you tend to blame, oh, look at the church, mm. they're, you know, they're so bad, they couldn't be, uh, they couldn't be sort of God's messengers, but we have to look beyond that and just see, yeah. it's a human church, and that's what's wrong, priests and bishops and popes we have started to idolize them as saints
2: but the first cabinet if you like was a male cabinet uh, jesus and his 12 male uh, apostles and uh, i think that's quite often the argument that's put forward against women priests isn't it Uh, but if uh, there were female deacons in the early church uh, i suppose you could also argue uh, that uh, they are to all intents purposes priests
10: Yes, uh, there was no such thing as a priest actually uh, until the second century in Christianity. You know that uh, people just pre- they were called presiders. People mm. got together on a Saturday evening, remembering uh, the Last Supper of Jesus and what happened, and uh, they would elect someone from among their members. And if you, uh, if we read the Gospels, mm. we see that it says very important women: Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of. Joseph and there was another Joanna and they were fairly wealthy women and they supported Jesus in his journey.
2: But is it it possible for for anybody to be really Catholic under the laws of the Catholic Church now? Whatever about women priests, uh, which is obviously prohibited, can women be Catholics if they're on the pill? Uh, And if they're not, are they expected to have a a dozen children?
10: (laughs) You know... It's so very easy just to say, you know, to to walk away from the whole lot, and so many people are, and I I certainly wouldn't blame them, and at times I get so angry about the thing that I say, oh, uh, you know, sometimes I just don't go to Mass, and I just say, look, and then I just say, well, something has to be done, and can it be done? For, and it has to be done now from the bottom. Mm. People around the country now are getting together, and I'm a member of one of them. And we have a Eucharist on a Sunday morning, just like the ordinary at uh, the ancient church. And we pre, and we elect someone from our our group, whether it's a man or woman, doesn't matter, and they preside over the Eucharist. Okay. And, we have our own, and that's the way what's happening, really, that people are not walking away and doing nothing, but they are sort of surviving in, in communities around Ireland, and unfortunately, that's where the Church will survive. Okay at the
2: top. Brendan, I have to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Brendan Butler of We Are Church Ireland brings our programme to its conclusion today. Thanks to Maggie McGuire and Ross Leahy for researching Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.
1: The Michael Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. michael at lmfm.ie